and I had to initiate everything. He said, I love you. And in my head, I was like, how boss would this be if I got some ass while Rant is playing? I finally can't stall anymore. <laughs> There's nothing else for me to do to be ready. Losing one's virginity is a seemingly defining moment in life when someone has sex for the first time, marking a transition into perceived adulthood. References to virginity are everywhere, and the message in the media tends to be, it's good to be a virgin, but not for too long. In listening to this podcast, you will hear how all different kinds of people lose their virginity. We will talk to people who waited and people who didn't, people who were young and people who were old, people who are heterosexual and people who are homosexual, and honestly, anyone willing to tell their story. Every episode will be different, following each person's experience from how they learned about sex to how their views on sex have changed since that very first time. This is V-Card, the Virginity Podcast. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. In today's season finale, we sit down with Julie Keltolilis to talk about the Virgin Mary. Julie teaches New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Virginia. She's currently turning her recent Duke University dissertation into a book about the surprisingly diverse ways that early Christians and their neighbors defined female virginity. Today we're going to discuss who Mary was and what virginity might have meant to her. These are her stories. Thank you for being here, Julie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Julie Kelto Lillis. I'm uh, teaching New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Virginia. And I like to study ways that people conceptualize stuff about gender and sexuality in the ancient world. So virginity is a very pertinent topic for things that I spend my time thinking about and teaching about. One of the reasons that it's worth studying to, to write and research on virginity and early Christianity is that virginity is just a very big deal among early Christians. For some people in the ancient world, if you became a Christian, that meant that you had to renounce sex entirely. And for some other people, marriage and virginity were sort of the two different options for lifestyles that somebody might commit to, and they were equally good. For a lot of people, maybe increasing numbers of people in the first few centuries of Christianity, the feeling was that virginity is a lifestyle that's better than marriage. They're both good, but virginity is like a much higher calling that some people live out instead. And there were a lot of like interesting debates and writings about this. Mm -hmm. And so your dissertation comes off of that somehow? The dissertation that I wrote is on the surprisingly varied ways that people conceptualize virginity in the ancient world. Early Christians and their neighbors in Mediterranean cultures had a really diverse bunch of ways that they talked about what virginity is and how, especially female virginity, how virgins and women are two different groups and where you draw the line. I argued that there were not just a whole bunch of different ways that people defined what virginity is, but also that until a really surprisingly late time in antiquity, 
people probably were not widely familiar with biological ideas that we tend to take for granted. So today, we tend to assume that everybody in all times and places believed that virgins have hymen tissue over their vaginas, that female virgins have hymen tissue over their vaginas, or that you could medically test virginity by examining sex organs. And a lot of times scholars look back to ancient texts and figure that people believed those same things that a lot of people today believe. And I think that actually was not a widespread set of beliefs until around the fifth century of the Common Era. So that's a, a big contribution and change that I'm trying to make in my field, where we've, we've wrongly assumed that when people say virginity in ancient writings, that they're thinking the same set of ideas that we tend to think about. So the impact of that is that we would need to rethink all of the old sort of ideas of what virginity is. Do you have ideas mm -hmm. about what that is? So you can see a few different examples in ancient texts where there are other meanings for what makes a virgin different from a woman. A lot of times people are talking about marital status. It's like saying a maiden or like a single woman rather than a married woman. Sometimes it's an age thing, like virgins are these like young maidens and they're not full-fledged women yet. Sometimes it's the question of sexual status. And certainly in ancient Mediterranean cultures, a lot of people are thinking about the question or worried about the question of like whether a woman getting married is sexually a virgin or not. But there are all these other things that that virgin language can point to instead. Sometimes it's even whether a woman has had children yet rather than whether she's had sex yet. So there's a, a whole bunch of different ways to draw that line that people liked to draw between these different groups of women. Uh, so we're here today to specifically talk about virginity in the context of Mary. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about who Mary is. Sure. The Virgin Mary is who yeah. we're talking about. Right, yes. Mary, a lot of people say the Virgin Mary. Scholars sometimes say Mary of Nazareth to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a Jewish woman who was living at the end of the first century BCE, beginning of the first century CE. And she was in a region of northern Israel or Roman Palestine called Galilee and seems to be from a little village called Nazareth. We don't know a ton about her life. She was probably not wealthy. She was probably a teenager when she got pregnant with Jesus. And as far as what virginity would mean to her or in her life, we don't really get to know, but we find out a lot of ideas of what early Christians thought was important about virginity in her life and for who she was. We have a huge number of different texts and stories that think about Mary and talk about why she was important. Are early Christian authors or any of them women? Very rarely. We know that there were a lot of literate women who wrote stuff. And actually, it's nice to be able to mention to or think about, like, why don't we have stuff Mary wrote? Yeah. And we have no idea if she could read or write. If she came from a pretty humble background, which seems historically likely, she probably was not literate, but later early Christians often picture her being a really wise and well-read person who's especially knowledgeable about Holy Scriptures from the Hebrew Bible. Sure. So we don't have anything that she wrote in her name. We know that lots of other early Christian women did write stuff. For instance, there are famous so-called church fathers from later centuries who write back and forth 
with women that they're close friends with and who are people that they think through some of their scholarly problems with and mm. theological ideas with. But we only have the men's letters. We don't have the women's letters because people didn't copy them or keep them. Right. So that kind of thing happens a lot. We know of a couple of women who wrote interesting sorts of literature. And we have a travel diary by somebody who went to different pilgrimage sites in mm. the fourth century. And a couple texts that might be by women, uh, as well as a whole lot of anonymous texts. Like a lot of texts in the New Testament don't actually have an author's name attached to them till later in time. So we don't know if maybe a New Testament gospel might have been written by a woman. Traditionally, they're thought to be written by men. So today, hopefully, we can talk through a couple of different options for what people thought about Mary. A lot of early Christian authors have interesting pictures of Mary's personality or what kind of person she was. And some of those conform to a really common picture that we find in some Christian traditions today where she's very meek and gentle and perhaps really secluded. And it's important that she be in sort of appropriate feminine roles with appropriate appropriate feminine traits. That meek picture is really common in some early Christian literature from around the Mediterranean world. But it's interesting that you get a few very different pictures of her among early authors. The Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, which is one of our earliest ways to try to encounter or find things out about Mary, makes her kind of bold and independent. She, at least, the Gospel of Luke makes her a lot less meek. She is engaging in conversation with this angel, Gabriel, and typically in biblical stories, angels kind of freak people out. Uh, People are generally (laughs) responding to seeing angels by being very scared, and angels have to say, don't be afraid, and then they go on. It's such a strange experience. Yeah, yeah. And Mary responds to Gabriel's presence by sort of asking a question back. When Gabriel says that she's going to have a child, she's like, well, how could I? I haven't known a man or husband. I haven't had sex before. Mm. So she's able to have this conversation with this scary divine sort of visitor. And she ends up also delivering this wonderful, famous song that people often call the Magnificat. That's a sort of prophetic declaration about the ways that God is going to reverse all the injustices in the world. So she has this really interesting, strong voice and sort of these bits of personality come through for the way at least that Luke is painting a picture of her. There's also some later texts that do interesting stuff with that. There are some poems and other kinds of literature from Syria that have Mary argue at length with Gabriel. They go back and forth for a really long time, and she's being she's not too sassy. She's being pretty careful about it, but she really pushes the angel to and, and fights with the angel really about what it is that's going on and how this could happen and, and trying to get her head around it. So again, like she's very bold. There are some even later texts from Byzantine Christianity starting in maybe the 6th or 7th century that show Mary having a lot of very powerful roles and sometimes she's sort of a counterpart to Christ during his earthly ministry. So among all these Christian disciples, the dudes hang out with Jesus and he's in charge of overseeing what they're doing. And Mary's got all the ladies like in, in her sort of charge. And she goes around having her own ministry roles also where she does miracles and healings and has a lot of power. So she has uh, a whole lot of 
really neat roles that suggest other kinds of power and wisdom and her connection to her son, giving her a kind of unique leadership role within churches. A lot of it is more famous in, in other branches of Christianity than the ones that the U.S. knows best. Yeah, popular sure. culture reflects Definitely. most often. Well, they hold on to the, her being a meek sort of facilitator mm-hmm. of Christ's greatness yeah. she instead just, of having her own sort of sense of independence. So it's really cool yeah. to hear that that's maybe not the case. Yeah. That, uh, from least, my perspective, at least. Besides being a virgin, what are some of the reasons Mary was important? Besides being important for her virginity and for bringing Christ into the world, a lot of Christians have seen Mary as an intercessor. A lot of Christians in early Christianity and up through today see themselves as having a really close relationship with her and believe that Mary and other saints can both interact with them and intercede with God for them in powerful ways so that their prayers and needs are met. Do some people in the ancient world claim Mary wasn't a virgin when she conceived Jesus? There are a lot of non-Christian texts, including some Jewish traditions that talk about Jesus being an illegitimate child rather than the Son of God. And one avenue of feminist thinking about the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and the ways that they talk about Mary and her conception of Jesus has been to not assume that Mary was sexually virginal, but instead to suggest that Jesus may have been an illegitimate child, either that Mary had sex with Joseph, or in some studies the argument has been perhaps Mary was actually raped by someone like a Roman soldier or somebody else, and that her son nonetheless is who God chooses to have be Jesus, to have be the savior of the world. What kinds of things are early Christian writers usually talking about when they talk about Mary? For a lot of these writers, it's probably important that she's Jesus's mom in an ongoing active sense, but they're often really interested in talking about Christ's divine parentage. So they're thinking about theologically, how do you explain the way that Jesus can be both human and divine, and the answer is often Mary gives Jesus all his human stuff, his humanity, but God through the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary so that she can have this very divine child. Her role in that story often becomes really passive. She's just sort of this avenue or gateway and the sort of source of like biological material in a way for God to produce the Savior Christ in in the ways that some people describe that event. But I think a lot of us today want to think more about her experience or are more interested in questions about what that meant for her life and her relationship to Jesus. And that's the kind of information that some writers speculate about and share some theories about. A lot of them are asking other kinds of questions than the ones that we want to answer. Interesting side note, a lot of times people misunderstand the phrase immaculate conception. Virginal conception is what a lot of us say to talk about the idea that Mary was sexually virginal in conceiving Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is actually a different phrase that refers to the way Mary herself was conceived by her mom. It's a whole other set of theological ideas about original sin and the importance of Mary being protected from the sort of contamination 
of humans' original sin so that she could give birth to a sinless person, Jesus. Did early Christians think that Mary was a virgin for the rest of her life, and was that important to them? Early Christian authors have a lot of different answers to that question, and it does seem important to them, to some of them, to talk about whether Mary stayed a virgin for the rest of her life after she conceived Jesus. Some of them don't go into a whole lot of detail. Our earliest sources, the Gospels and the New Testament, they say a little bit about Mary, but they're not very interested, it seems, in the question of whether she was sexually virginal for the rest of her life or not. We get these glimpses of Jesus having siblings, and some of the wording, like in the Gospel of Matthew, about how Joseph doesn't have sex with Mary until she or prior to the time that she bears her son. People have sometimes read those as as saying, like, well, clearly Mary and Joseph then got married and had sex and had babies. Other people have read it really differently through the centuries. Some early Christians said that the siblings mentioned in the gospel are actually cousins. One really common early tradition is that the siblings mentioned in the New Testament Gospels are step-siblings from Joseph's previous marriage. The tradition here that's been a really influential one for Christian literature through lots of the ages is mainly known through a text called the Proto-Gospel of James, which was recorded in the second century. And the Proto-Gospel of James gives a bunch of backstory for Mary's family, how her parents had her, and then builds up to her childbirth with Christ. In the Proto-Gospel of James, Joseph is a much older guy. Mary's very young, and she's this really unusual, exceptional figure who actually lives in the Jerusalem temple, which wouldn't have made a lot of historical sense, and ends up getting sort of assigned to Joseph, who is a widower and has full-grown children. And they're sort of betrothed, but it's more like he's going to be a guardian than like he's going to be a husband for her. It's, It's sort of ambiguous in the text. But that text seems to imagine that this really pure, important, unusual figure, Mary, is going to stay pure in those ways throughout the rest of her life. There's this Christian author from Egypt who is really famous for biblical interpretation. In most of this guy's sermons and writings that deal with Mary, he seems to think that she's uh, a person who has pretty human strengths and weaknesses. But there are some passages where he makes a really big deal out of her chosenness and how spiritual and special she must have been to be able to be the mother of the Savior of the world. There's a passage where he says something like, how could Mary have been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the way that Luke's gospel talks about the way that she gets pregnant, and then go and have sex with any human being? So something about the the way that she becomes extra holy and pure because of the spirit entering her in the way that it did, or maybe how great that was compared to sex or something, yeah. um, makes it unbelievable for him that she would not stay a virgin for the whole rest of her life. So that's that's one of the kinds of ways that people think at times about how she's kind of ordinary but really exceptional and why it might be that they can or can't picture her starting to have sex and being a sort of normal wife and mother later or being a virgin for her whole long life. 
some other early Christian texts assume that Mary and Joseph did go on to have children and thought that Mary could be a model for Christians who had ordinary family life and not just for the bunch of Christians who decided to become consecrated virgins or have a lifelong celibate kind of lifestyle. Most other surviving texts, though, do teach that Mary stayed a virgin for the rest of her life. That becomes really important for a lot of Christians' understanding of how special and holy she would need to be to be the mother of Jesus, as well as for their picture of how much more superior a celibate or virginal lifestyle among Christians of their time is compared with the good but very inferior married ordinary way of life with worldly commitments and earthly relationships. This might lead right into what we need to talk about is what does it mean to be a virgin in these early texts? Different texts seem to mean pretty different things by calling Mary a virgin or saying that she stops being a virgin at some given point in her story. The New Testament Gospels don't get very specific about it. The later texts, the second and third century stories and comments about Mary and things after that, get a little more particular or give a few more hints about what they're thinking when they say virgin and virginity. The second century text, Proto-Gospel of James, has perhaps the most vivid and memorable way of saying that Mary has a virginal childbirth. That's a text that thinks that Mary is a virgin in a very special way all the way through her bearing of Jesus. And what it seems to mean by virgin, I think, shifts at different parts of the text. She doesn't have sex with anybody, so that's one form of virginity and purity that the story is interested in. But it's also interested in making the birth of Jesus really miraculous and unique. And what it does to convey that is to make Mary's birthing experience virginal in a very unprecedented way. There's this famous scene in the Proto-Gospel of James where a midwife shows up at the cave where Mary is already in the process of delivering Jesus. And Joseph has gone to get the midwife. They're standing outside the cave looking in, and they see this miracle scene where there's this dark cloud overshadowing the cave, and there's this piercing light within it, so no one can really see exactly what's going on. And when the light fades, the infant Jesus is just kind of there already and starts nursing. The midwife who's seeing all this from outside the cave goes and encounters another woman named Salome or Salome, who maybe is supposed to be another midwife. And the first midwife says that a virgin gave birth. You know, she's talking about this incredible thing that she's seen. And Salome says that she's not going to believe that unless she goes and actually inspects Mary for herself. She goes into the cave, and it sounds like what she's doing is examining Mary's genitals. But when she does this, and tries to touch her, her hand catches on fire. <laughs> and she has to uh, touch the baby Jesus in order to be healed from her hand like burning away and falling off. And she is thereby miraculously sort of um, put right from her unbelief or her doubt about the situation. That's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a really great story that had a whole lot of influence into later Christian literature. The thing that the midwives are talking about has usually been interpreted 
as a sort of climactic episode of proving that Mary never had sex. A lot of times people say, well, virgin means she's never had sex. So Salome is going in there to check that her hymen is still intact. And I actually think that's an anachronistic reading. I think what they're talking about is whether Mary looks like a maidenly woman who has not given birth as opposed to a full-fledged woman who has become reproductively mature by bearing children. She gives birth to Jesus, but she's spared from all these sort of complicated and messy, violent, potentially impure things about childbirth that this audience would have had in mind for this idea that might be uncomfortable for thinking about the way that Jesus would enter the world. So Mary is spared from a bunch of that stuff, and that means her body stays looking virginal instead of reproductive in a typical way. So I think the proto-gospel of James, by calling her a virgin, is talking not just about whether she's had sex, but also whether or not her body has experienced childbirth in a normal earthly way. There's another early Christian writer who goes in another direction with what counts as virginity, and this one's a little more familiar to us. A writer named Tertullian, who's writing in the end of the second, beginning of the third century, he has some famous comments about how Mary giving birth makes her no longer a virgin. He thinks she was a virgin before that, but he thinks that the anatomical change that occurs by having sex or giving birth, so probably he's imagining something like a hymen, he thinks that giving birth inherently makes Mary's body different and thus no longer virginal. So he equates giving birth to getting married and having sex. For him, virginity is an anatomical kind of category, at least in that particular text, because he has a lot to say about virginity in other places where he has to make it mean some other things instead. It's worth noting, too, that Tertullian, I think, is our first Christian writer who gives any evidence for believing in hymens or for the idea that women have reproductive organs that are virginally closed innately until they are permanently opened by having sex. This becomes a really common set of ideas and terms a little later into Christian antiquity, but it's another set of ideas that I think we've read back too far onto earlier sources. And back in the time of the New Testament and a lot of literature that comes soon after it, it was much more common, I think, for people to assume that pain or bleeding during sexual initiation was something that came that happened for other reasons. People had explanations outside of the idea of a hymen for why those things would occur. And I think most of them figured that vaginas were relatively unobstructed kinds of organs. Changing that picture is part of what I'm trying to do with my research. Other early Christians could have a whole range of other things in mind when they're talking about what a virgin is. Sometimes they're thinking especially about the spiritual connection that somebody has to the divine and the ways that a virgin is dedicating their whole self and their whole life to God, whether that's in a kind of a way that's understood sort of maritally that you're getting married to God or whether that's a different way of dedicating yourself to this future age where people are no longer going to be born and die but live forever. And the sort of singular devotion that people can live out in their earthly life to God, to Christ, 
by doing the virgin thing instead of the normal, traditional, worldly married thing is a really important consideration for a lot of other early Christian writers. You said some things about people understanding physical virginity in different ways in the ancient world. Can you say more about that? We actually have a lot of medical literature surviving from the ancient world. And a lot of times people ask me about what you find out about virginity, and especially my interest in like, what do people think physical virginity means? Uh, What do you find out from ancient medical texts? The main thing that you find out is that the writers who know a lot about women's reproductive health don't seem to believe in hymen tissue, or at least whatever hymen tissue they saw, they just saw as like more of the parts of the vagina. They didn't think of it as its own separate thing that was a a body part with a particular function. It's not until again, like maybe the beginning of the 5th century CE that we start finding much evidence that people thought you could medically test virginity or that you've got um, really distinctive virginal anatomy (laughs) for women that's different from what their bodies are like or what body parts they have or have intact before and after they have sex. A lot of the, the growing developments in antiquity about ways of thinking about virginity that only gradually gets sort of ana- like anatomized and medicalized, that happens in partnership with thought about Mary to some extent, but it's definitely not a static set of ideas about virginal bodies from beginning to end. So different texts about Mary have different assumptions in mind about what female virgins' bodies are like. And today I think a lot of us have operated for a long time with some kind of vague (laughs) assumptions that we think are the same way everybody from every time and place thought about female virgins' bodies. But a lot of those things can vary from culture to culture, and a lot of those things are very controversial among scientists, among biologists and doctors. So there's always a variety of ways that people look at the body and name or count or see the parts of the body. And talk about how bodies do or don't give proof of virginity, which has been such a hot button issue in a lot of news for some decades. Given all the different possibilities for what it means to be a virgin, why is it important that Mary have some sort of definition of that? For some of the early Christian writers, it's mainly important for Mary to be a virgin so that Jesus can be divine. For some of them, it seems like it's also important for Jesus and Mary to have a really wonderful childbirth experience, to have a unique enough or pure enough kind of childbirth experience. Uh, Some writers seem to be thinking about Mary exemplifying holiness and freedom from the ordinary demands of human life. And some are really interested in making Mary a model for later Christians who devote themselves to God through lifelong virginity. For some late ancient writers who see celibacy as the highest lifestyle among Christians, Mary's and Jesus' virginity helps them make their case against people who disagree with them. So different writers seem to have a number of different possible reasons and ideas about what is so meaningful about virginity as well as what virginity means. Thanks for listening to the first season of V-Card, the Virginity Podcast. We are currently preparing for season two. If you would like to tell your story, please send an email to the virginitypodcast at gmail.com.